4: Hello, you're listening to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the magazine's editor.
0: And I'm Rob Attar, feature's editor.
4: This is our August 2010 podcast. Coming up this month...
5: If you ask children, well, have you heard of Nelson, some will say yes, whereas if you mention Henry Havelock, you can be pretty confident that the vast majority, if not all, will have no idea who he is.
4: That was Max Jones on the decline of British heroes.
5: People will get warmer and
1: warmer if they watch all three episodes.
4: That was Robert Bartlett, Talking Normans.
1: He was this modest individual, and we'd no idea that he, up to that time, was the biggest mass murderer in the whole of human history.
4: And that was Hugh Lungie, recalling his time with Stalin.
0: This monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best selling history title. Well, nowadays we live in a celebrity culture where sports stars, TV personalities, and pop singers dominate the media and our attention. But in the 19th century, we had a very different type of hero people such as Admiral Nelson, David Livingstone, and General Gordon. So, why did we lose interest in the old imperial and military heroes, and will they ever come back in fashion? The man with the answers is Max Jones, a historian at Manchester University. He's written a piece on the fall of Britain's heroes in our latest issue, and I caught up with him recently to find out more. What kind of person would have been a popular hero in the 19th century?
5: When we're considering what kind of person would have been a popular hero in the 19th century, we have to think about the media. And I think one helpful way of considering heroes is to make a distinction between heroes and heroism. So... What I want to point out is that there are lots of people doing heroic things, lots of people who are displaying heroism, if you like, all around the world at any time, who are being brave, who are sacrificing themselves, putting themselves in danger, who are enduring hardship for a higher cause, etc., etc. So there are lots of examples of heroism going on at any time, but only a certain a number of people are raised as heroes if you like their acts of heroism are singled out. So when we're sort of thinking about what sort of people become heroes, we've got to think about these mechanisms of the media. What is the media looking for, or what are the government looking for? And if we look in the 19th century then, we can see quite a distinctive pattern. On the one hand, we have uh, uh, the government, the state, becoming more involved in the commemoration of national heroes, of soldiers, of sailors, of explorers, people like Nelson and General Gordon and Havelock and these figures being raised up by the state with statues in Trafalgar Square for example and the government wanting to use them if you like as examples of good conduct and duty so on the one hand if we look at the 19th century and see what sort of people would be raised as heroes we can see as I say these soldiers sailors and explorers and the government having an investment in promoting them but we also have the emergence in the Victorian period of a media industry a network of different cultural products that actually looks quite familiar to us. So at the end of the 19th century, we have the creation of mass daily newspapers, uh, with the Daily Mail appearing in 1906 and the Daily Mirror by 1903. And these newspapers, if you took the Daily Mirror, for example, in the 1900s, it would look very familiar to us today with a big photograph and a big banner headline on the front page. And these media, new media forms, well, they have different interests. They want to, of course sell newspapers and what they want are good stories and individuals that they can sell to their readers so what we have as well from the later 19th century through into the Edwardian period is a great investment of national newspapers in tales of heroism that will entertain their readers so they start telling stories too and then we might see a third strand as well if we've got the state and we've got the media we also have other more specific interests. So famously, the Victorian artist and writer G.F. Watts, he established Postman's Park in London to commemorate what he called acts of everyday heroism. And this was very specifically to acknowledge the heroism of ordinary working people, like Alice Ayres, for example, who sacrificed herself to save members of her family from a burning building. And he explicitly wanted to sort of commemorate people who were doing heroic things who he felt might be ignored in the general run of things. So when we think about heroism, we want to think about the media and how certain acts and individuals are raised up for very specific reasons.
0: And how would you say that the idea of heroism is nowadays? Has it changed quite a lot from 100 years ago?
5: Well, It's interesting. When we think about how ideas of heroism have changed over the last, say, 200 years, say, from the death of Nelson, I actually think that we can exaggerate the extent of those changes. I think that we still for example look at someone who risks their own life to save someone else and that's still I think seen as a particularly brave act. So I think that there's certain qualities of courage, endurance, risk and sacrifice that we still value. And if you look for example at the Pride of Britain Awards that the Daily Mirror and other organisation sponsors in the autumn, you'll find tales of, if you like, ordinary everyday heroism being commemorated and celebrated. So I think that in terms of the qualities that society seems to admire, I'm not sure that these qualities have changed as much as the context. I think it's the context in which these qualities are displayed which has really changed. So, for example, if we look back in the 19th century, an age of imperial expansion, we find soldiers being celebrated for their martial qualities, etc., and sailors like Nelson being celebrated, great military leaders. And I think that we are a little more uncomfortable than we were, both with the imperial project, both with the idea that Britain should be expanding and ruling over other people, and more generally as well, suspicious of military heroism. We're quite now suspicious and think, mm, I wonder, well, actually, was this brave act really so brave? Is this actually propaganda? So both the imperial context and the military context have been questioned. But again, there's great continuity. We can look at, for example, Example, at the bravery of the armed forces fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq. And whatever you may think of the politics of those two conflicts, there does seem to be a very widespread admiration for the bravery of the soldiers who are fighting there, many of whom have been decorated and celebrated, often for helping their comrades.
0: Do you believe that the current celebrity culture has perhaps overshadowed some of the old heroes?
5: I think absolutely. We live today in a world where celebrities play a crucial part in our marketplace, in this crowded marketplace. So if we look back into the 19th century and we're trying to explain why certain people were celebrated, we can certainly see, as we've said, you've got to talk about the media and what newspapers, periodicals, etc., what sort of figures they singled out and raised up as being worthy of admiration. So this is an old story but I think certainly really in the interwar period we began to see if you like a synergy, a relationship between the world of entertainment and the media. Sports stars, film stars, singers who'd often been celebrated but very much at a local level began to be national figures and capable of selling large quantities of products, books, newspapers, magazines, celebrity endorsements become particularly important. There's also a great rise in human interest journalism in the different idiosyncrasies of each celebrity, which of course has continued today. And we can see the emergence of the interview just before the First World War. The interview becomes a key feature of this new form of journalism so I think that the celebrity culture we have today has actually got quite long roots you can certainly trace it back to the late Victorian period and I really think it begins to take off between the wars arguably with the rise of cinema and new film stars, people from Rudolph Valentino to Gracie Fields etc and I think what we're seeing today is the intensification of those trends that you can originally trace back to the interwar period.
0: Something I find quite interesting is that some of the old imperial and military heroes of the 19th century, people like Nelson and Wellington, I think are still fairly popular, but other ones like maybe Havelock and Jellicoe really aren't that well known anymore. Why do you think some of them are much more enduring than others?
5: This is a fascinating question, isn't it? Why do we remember some figures and don't remember others? And I think that there are a number of factors that come into play, which mean that, for example, Nelson does, I think, remain a figure. If you ask children, well, have you heard of Nelson? Some will say yes. Whereas if you mention Henry Havelock, you can be pretty confident that the vast majority, if not all, will have no idea who he is. I think there are a number of factors which come into play. I think, I think certainly the imperial heroes of the 19th century are problematic for us now in a multicultural society and I think that Britain for all the interest in history is actually the general public are remarkably ignorant of Britain's imperial past. I think it's actually proved easier to not think about it, to not engage with people like Havelock in an age of mass immigration and multiculturalism. It's proved easier not to talk about figures like Havelock rather than to really engage with them. And I do think that greater attention to Britain's imperial history is very significant because you can't really understand the global role that Britain has and the role Britain has on the world stage without engaging with the imperial past. So I think partly when you look at a figure like Nelson, he's not tarnished, if you like, by association with an imperial conflict which raises uncomfortable issues. Other factors include, what about visual icons? Are there photographs? We live in a very visual age today. And actually, Havelock didn't generate so many striking pictures. There's a particular print of Havelock that the BBC History magazine have used. Well, that's the most common one that is nearly always used. Now, contrast that, for example, with General Gordon or Captain Scott. The painter G.W. Joy produced... Used a painting of the death of Gordon on the steps of the palace at Khartoum. Now, this was almost certainly... A fiction, a fantasy of imperial heroism, but it proved tremendously influential and it influenced writers and filmmakers and TV producers throughout the 20th century. And then we look at Captain Scott, and one of the reasons his story has been remembered, I'm sure, is the fact not only that he wrote this wonderful message to the public at the back of his journal as he faced death, but also that the explorers took photographs at the South Pole. And I was particularly interested when Hello! magazine did a special photographic supplement of the 20th century, and the collage on the front cover included the pictures taken by Captain Scott and his four companions at the South Pole. So I think this idea of the problematic aspects of empire, visual iconography, and then also Are there particular groups or institutions that have an investment in the story? So, for example, Nelson is sustained by a whole range of heritage sites. With the victory in Trafalgar, the National Maritime Museum had a Nelson room. And I think the possession of these sort of institutions, which will continue to make an investment in an individual, often helps explain why we remember some figures and not others.
0: Do you think there's any chance that some of these forgotten 19th and early 20th century heroes will be rehabilitated?
5: Yes, I do. I think that these patterns can sometimes change in unexpected ways. So, for example, today, Ernest Shackleton is a very celebrated figure. He was the polar explorer who went south on Scott's first expedition to the Antarctic, but then fell out with him and organised his own expedition, got within 97 miles of the South Pole, and then during the First World War organised a second expedition on the Endurance and his ship was trapped in the ice and that's the incredible story of how he managed to engineer the rescue of his party including this wonderful boat journey across to the island of South Georgia It's one of the great stories heroic tales of exploration now Shackleton, for much of the 20th century, was completely overshadowed by Scott, was not a name to conjure with at all and it wasn't really until the 1990s that his story was rediscovered and again the existence of visual material really helped Shackleton here because Frank Hurley had taken film footage of the expedition and there were wonderful photographs as well so the story could be illustrated which I think was essential and management can- consultants found this story, and they started comparing Scott and casting Shackleton as the charismatic, inspirational leader against, so they claimed, the stiff, hierarchical Scott. So in a way that I think you wouldn't have predicted in the 1980s, this wonderful story was rehabilitated and retold, and Shackleton now, if anything, in the public imagination, the indicators suggest he's more celebrated than Captain Scott. Now, obviously with Empire, as I've said, there are many troubling aspects of the reputations of figures like Havelock and Gordon, but I also do think that you can't be sure how these things will play out in a different context. It's quite possible that artists or filmmakers will find inspiration in some of these stories and produce a major cultural product, a feature film, for example, which really chimes and resonates, which connects some of these 19th century figures who are forgotten at the moment with contemporary interests. So it's hard to predict at the moment, but I certainly don't think it's impossible. For example, General Gordon was very involved in China and earned his reputation first as Chinese Gordon in the 1860s. And uh, it's not impossible to envisage a sort of major feature film treatment of Chinese Gordon, which might rejuvenate interest. I think not as a sort of simplistic figure to admire, but rather to promote a sort of engagement With these tales from the past.
0: That was Dr Max Jones, and as I mentioned earlier, you can read more about the subject in our August issue.
4: Now it's time to take a look at the Normans. The BBC is devoting a season to Norman history on BBC4 and BBC2 in August. Professor Robert Bartlett from St Andrews University is one of the foremost experts on the subject, and he's presenting a three part series on the story of the Normans. I had a chat with him to find out what's in the programs. My first question was to inquire where the filming had taken him.
3: We start off in the Arctic Circle, because, of course, the Normans were originally Vikings. Mm-hmm. So we have a bit uh, of Scandinavian footage on a um, a replica Viking ship. Uh, and then, of course, we do a lot in northern France and the British Isles. We take We follow them right across... Uh, England, Scotland, Ireland and Wales so we film in all of those countries uh, and then episode 3 is The Normans in the Mediterranean and that um, is partly the Norman conquest of southern Italy and the establishment of the Kingdom of Sicily and the architecture there which is which is fabulous the Stafford and Palermo um, that they sponsored and partly their participation in the First Crusade so we film in Istanbul, Constantinople, and um, Antioch, which of course was a very important uh, military uh, scene in the First Crusade, uh, and is not not often visited, I think, um, and it has a rather spectacular topography. The um, the town is uh, on in a river valley but then there's a mountain that shoots up right behind it, and the walls, uh, which are Byzantine walls, and the uh, citadel, which were very important in the capture of, of Antioch by the crusaders, are actually on that very high mountain, so there's some rather nice uh, footage up there. And then finally the, um, the the crusade comes to Jerusalem, and we filmed in, in Jerusalem, and in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre uh, and along the walls and so on.
4: Right, right. Um, sounds great. Sounds, sounds yeah, yeah.
3: So you get, the, um, you get the sort of Arctic Circle at the beginning and yeah. the Judean Desert at the end. So <laughs> right. people, people will get warmer and warmer if they watch all three episodes. Right.
4: Now, uh, we, we, in, in the UK, we tend to think of the Normans sort of purely in terms of, of, of William the Conqueror and the Norman Conquest in 1066, don't we? Yeah. Are, are we sort of really missing a trick there with that attitude?
3: Well, I think um, the, the story is more than that and I think um, uh, bringing to a sort of Anglophone audience the, the establishment of the Normans in Normandy what French society was like in the 10th and 11th centuries that I think will be possibly new then we are quite careful to follow the Normans, not just in England, but throughout the British Isles. Yeah. So we film in Scotland, Wales and Ireland, and we talk about the coming of the Normans to those countries and the different effects it had. I mean, for example, the way that in Scotland the, the Normans were invited in, they strengthened the local dynasty, um, they assimilated whereas in Ireland you have um, much more of a colonial situation with outsiders coming in, conquering, and trying to maintain the separateness. And yeah. um, we film uh, in the National Library of Ireland, we film the manuscript of Gerald of Wales's Topography of Ireland, which is uh, beautifully illustrated. quite an important text in the the growth of a colonial mentality because he's seeing the Irish as belonging to a completely different stage of civilization, a a more barbaric and primitive stage of civilization and that's one of the justifications for the conquest. Mm. So you've got two quite different models there in Scotland and Ireland and I think that would be that would be something um, that people were less familiar with than 1066.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And then, of course, the Normans in the Mediterranean is is a story that quite a lot of people don't don't know about. Mm. Uh, and the, in particular, the some of the more spectacular architecture that we film in in Palermo. We film the Capella Palatina. We film Monreale, the Church of the Materana. These are these are beautiful places where you have a real cultural overlap because this is a part of the world where you've got uh, westerners like the normans and and some local italians you've got greeks byzantines and you've got muslims all all living together and the cultural traditions intermingle and you Mm. can see that in the architecture And, and we filmed some of the Uh, Arabic uh, texts that were produced in the kingdom of Sicily because it's an area where, where Greek, Latin and Arabic are all being used. And so it's a wonderful position for the transmission of knowledge from one culture to another. And and this book by Al Idrisi that we film is um, a geography of the world, uh, which is in Arabic, but is produced in the court of the Norman kings of Sicily. And, And so that part of the story, I think, is less familiar. And if you put that all together... Uh, it puts 1066 in the Norman Conquest of England. We we don't we we devote quite a lot of time to that. We devote quite a lot of time to William the Conqueror and the Norman Conquest, uh, Doomsday Book, the Bio Tapestry. Uh, all those things are very important, hmm. but we put we put it in a in a the context of a, a longer and a broader story in terms of chronology and geography.
4: We label a people the Normans, but what, how far did the the people who were actually Normans in the, at the time how far did they think of themselves as Normans?
3: Well, one of the interesting things is the way they change. I mean we, we start off with a, a bunch of Vikings, yep. then they settle in northern France and they undergo a very big change in northern, in northern france they, they first of all they, they stop speaking Scandinavian languages and speak French. And then they adapt themselves to French society. So they become the the rulers become uh, knights. They're, they fight on horseback, uh, they become Christian, of course, so that they've already made a transition from one set of identities, Scandinavian pagan raiders, to Christian knights in northern France, um, by that stage. And then, as they go to other bases, they they intermarry. They're, they're, there's very rarely. Uh, a mass migration of Normans, or perhaps never a mass migration of Normans. It's usually small numbers, very often a military elite. And when they arrive, they're, they're normally um, heavily uh, male-biased, so they marry local women, and pretty soon they've learned the local languages in most cases and so on. So so the identity is changing all the time. There's no doubt that roundabout... Um, the um, early part of the 12th century there were people who said we normans have conquered everywhere so there are people who had a sense of what you could call norman pride and they talk about how they conquered england and how they conquered italy and how they've gone to the middle east in the crusade so there are people around who have that consciousness um but that's um that's only a sort of a minor part of the story really i think and uh, and what's what brings it out is if you say, well, when when do you stop talking about Normans? Yeah,
1: yeah.
3: Because, of course, the Normans, and we say this in the film, we say the Normans disappear, but that's not a sign of their failure. It's a sign of their success. They spread everywhere. They intermarry. They assimilate. And eventually, there's, there's not much point in talking about Normans, because how, how do you tell? And there's a famous quotation from the, the uh, Henry II's royal treasurer uh, in the late 12th century. And he says, now... And this is a hundred years after the Norman conquest. He said now it's very, very hard to tell, impossible to tell who's of English descent and who's of Norman descent, and so mm-hmm. they they intermingle. and in in Scotland, you know by the time you get to the Wars of Independence, someone like uh, Robert Bruce, who becomes King of Scots, is a you know straightforward descendant of of Norman settlers, and his name, Bruce comes from Brice in Normandy, but there's not a sense that he's a Norman. Uh, as distinct from the other Scots lords, uh, the people who settle in Sicily. When when do they stop being aware of being Normans? You know, they they learn the local language, they intermarry. You know, they know that their ancestry because there are there are chroniclers and and people writing songs who who recount where they come from. They know that they came in as Normans as conquerors, but that's no longer part of their real everyday uh, identity i think by by say
4: 1200 okay okay just finally one more question then if, if i had to sort of pin you down say, so what what's the legacy of the normans across europe was is there anything you'd you'd leap on and say that's 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 their legacy
3: well um what we say at the conclusion of the series and it's something that i think is is a pretty fair point is that you could look at the story of the Normans and its long-term significance in two ways, which are rather contradictory. The first is that they're clearly an example of aggressive colonialism. There's no question about that. Hmm. And sometimes that colonialism is more stark than, than others. In, in Ireland, is particularly stark. In other places, it's... Um, southern Italy, for example, there's a much more of a cultural intermingling. But in some ways or another, it's a model of expansion, military expansion, aristocratic aggression that was quite common in that period. And that uh, personally, I think, can be uh, taken forward to the modern experience of European imperialism, which, of course, has shaped the modern world. So the first point would be, you know, we're looking at a, a blueprint for imperialism the other point, and this is something that is linked to that first point in a rather complicated way, is that we see societies where people of different languages and cultures and sometimes different religions are living together. So there's a model or or an an image or an ideal of multi-ethnic, multicultural societies, the kind of societies where people can speak different languages and have different identities but still live together. And that's the other possible Uh, lesson or legacy, whichever you want to call it, that
2: we could draw from the story. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
4: You can read more about Robert Bartlett's series, plus a major feature on the Doomsday Book, in the August issue of BBC History magazine.
0: Now, quite frequently in the magazine, we discuss the Second World War and the leading players in it, men like Stalin, Churchill and Roosevelt. But it's not very often that we get to speak to someone who actually knew these people. Well, this month, one of our writers, Chris Bowlby, had the chance to interview Hugh Lungy, a British interpreter in the Second World War, who was able to observe them all at close hand. As a Russian speaker, Lungy was assigned to the British military mission in Moscow. He was also present at the major Allied conferences, such as at Tehran and Yalta. Then, towards the end of the war, Lange was one of the first Westerners to enter the ruins of Hitler's Berlin Chancellery. His wartime memories are so fascinating that we decided to run an extended extract of the interview in this podcast. We join it as Hugh recalls his first encounter with Stalin.
1: I first saw Stalin at a banquet given to our head of the chiefs of staff, who was Alan Brook, field marshal who became eventually Alan Brook. Is this
6: this period when you have to go to the Kremlin sometimes to be there with Stalin, this extraordinary atmosphere of approaching the Kremlin through all the corridors?
1: I wasn't then interpreting the first time I saw Stalin. I saw him more or less at a distance, really. But afterwards, if you went uh, separately with one person... For example, I went, actually, after the war with uh, Montgomery. Yes, one walked down these uh, completely silent corridors smelling faintly of uh, mahorka, which is a Russian crude tobacco, uh, which smells of cabbage. And first of all, uh, you go up in a lift. His um, private quarters or his study was situated at the far end of the Kremlin from the entrance entrance. We entered on the north side and you had to drive right across, escorted by NKVD police, obviously, to the other side. And there we got out on a fairly low building, took the lift up one floor only, got out of the lift, straight into... It wasn't a separate room, but straight into sort of an annex to Stalin's study... And there was sitting Stalin's uh, personal aide, personal secretary, a man called Paskryobashev, who was, a, like all of them actually, a, a murderous individual. You know, he sent a lot of people to be shot and liquidated and so on. But he was in charge of who went to see Stalin, with Stalin's approval of course, and, and who didn't, foreigners or Russians, we learned afterwards.
6: You say he was a murderous official. How much did you know about this at the time?
1: Very little, very little. Uh, There was just an atmosphere, and and occasionally you might get, you might, but it really was very rare, a Russian friend or someone you'd met, and he obviously trusted you. This was wartime, so we were supposed to be allies. He might sort of drop hints about who was... The nastiest of the lot. I mean, that's how one came to interpret it, you could, you could tell.
6: But is it the sort of thing where you, what you've subsequently learned has made you look back on memories in a different way? You think, ah, oh, well, this is someone I almost socialized with, shook hands with, but now I know more about
1: him. Not really in a different way, because one learned fairly soon. I should put this all in the context, of my going to Russia, in the context of the media here. Now, when I say media, it's just radio and papers. There was no television there, no, no emails, nothing like that. So it was restricted, but it was even more restricted, the news coming out of Russia, because of the press censorship it was very tight, much tighter than it was in Britain. But in Britain. At the time that I went out, which was June 1943, the Red Army had scored some marvellous victories and the press, the media, was brimming over with goodwill towards the Russians and indeed to its leader, Stalin. And to criticise Stalin or the Red Army was a kind of treachery, undermining the, the war effort. Now, once you got there, It was a very different kettle of fish. You thought it was all right to begin with, but we talked about the six-month rule. To begin with, you sort of excused things that you saw, And then, as you got to know people, you realized what a horrendous life they were living, ordinary Russians. And the most terrible thing at the end of everybody's stay there was people who had lived in Germany I mean, who'd worked there, our own people, who'd been there as students, perhaps, or working in whatever job, they came to the conclusion, after living in Russia and doing the same sort of jobs, that life for the Russian people, or the Soviet people, and not just Russians, but other under the USSR, was worse than life for Germans, except, of course, the persecuted categories like Jews, homosexuals, disabled people and so on. And it was terrible to think that here we were fighting Hitler, who couldn't have been more of a monster that you could imagine, with the help of a monster who is probably rather worse even than Hitler.
6: Was he unpredictable, though? I mean, you saw him several times, and and there as an interpreter you have a shrewd sense of mood and so on. Would would his mood vary, Stalin's mood vary a lot? Would, Would he be sometimes a man of bonhomie, sometimes more severe, that kind of thing?
1: No, not at all. On the contrary, when you first saw him, you got a shock because one had seen him portraits in newspapers, you'd seen his icons, we call them, going up in Red Square on festive days and so on, And if you hadn't seen him before you'd seen any of those, you'd get a real shock, because on the icons, in the portraits, he was portrayed as a heroic figure, uh, tall, well above his uh, lieutenants, broad-shouldered, strong. But when you were ushered into his study by this man, Paskryobashev, you suddenly saw in front of you a figure like a little old uncle, pockmarked face very bad teeth and never looking you a foreigner in the eye which was a strange thing and here was this modest individual and we would no idea that he up to that time was the biggest mass murderer in the whole of human history since then of course we know about Mao Zedong who murdered rather more than Stalin but both Absolutely, and in relative terms, people have worked out that he murdered more people than anyone else in history. So that was Stalin. But when he came to talk, he didn't raise his voice. I have to put a caveat in here. Don't forget, I'm talking about Stalin facing foreigners. We now know that he was quite the opposite, facing his own people He'd stare at them, terrify them with his stare, would shout at them, foul language, vulgarities, and so on. But with us, with foreigners, I mean, he was terribly careful to keep to the protocol, very good-mannered. In fact, we used to talk about him having Victorian manners. Quite extraordinary. And he spoke then quietly... Another shock I got because he spoke with a Georgian accent, and suddenly this Georgian accent, I'd heard whether Georgian, Armenian, or other Caucasian accents didn't really matter, but I had heard them only in fun, in funny jokes pinned onto Russian. If Russian was spoken with this accent, it was rather like English being spoken, if you're a southerner, by a Yorkshireman or what we used to call Wiganthier English. So uh, the first time I heard it, probably I'd heard him on the radio, but of course it's distorted, particularly in those days. But the first I heard him clear speech, it really was a shock. It set me back on my heels.
6: You must have sort of observed, if you like, Churchill's developing relationship with Stalin, two very strong characters, <laughs> we would assume. Mm. But were they wary of each other initially? Did it change over
1: time? Uh, I think they were wary of each other, but if I may leap ahead on the last meeting, or well, the last two meetings that Churchill had with uh, Stalin, which was Yalta and Potsdam, his attitude, I won't say is necessarily more friendly, more relaxed perhaps, and of course he used to send Stalin rather uh, friendly messages on his birthday and so on, and... The extraordinary thing was that he used to say to Arthur Berth, and I heard this once. I think Stalin is the most humane of the lot, don't you? And he also said, I like Vishinsky. Now you couldn't imagine a more ghastly, vile person than than Vishinsky. In character, he was one of the prosecutors and in the the bloodbath of the trials in the 30s, in the first half of the 30s. That's Vyshinsky. And as we know, in the House of Commons, he made favourable references to Stalin. And when Arthur Burst and I discussed this well after the war, we wondered how this had happened and when, and came to the conclusion, actually Arthur Burst came to the conclusion, because he knew better than I, that it happened, actually, on... Churchill's second meeting, second, uh, yes, second meeting with Stalin. Now, these two meetings all took place in Moscow in August 1942. The first meeting, the very first time that Churchill met Stalin, was when he announced, had to announce, that there would be no second front in 1943, certainly not in 1942 and not in 1943, probably, for very good reasons. We weren't prepared didn't have the equipment, landing craft and trained men. The Americans came in uh, much later. There were arguments about this on our side, but, of course, Stalin made a great propaganda stick out of the absence of the Second Front and we in Moscow suffered under this. There was a kind of Cold War. But the reason why Churchill became softer, perhaps, towards Stalin was because after that first meeting, Churchill, without more ado, said, "Right, well, I'm going home because Stalin had been rather rude about uh, the British saying they were afraid to fight, and so on. When are they going to fight? What about the second front? Opening a second front?" Churchill pointed out there was already a third, fourth, and fifth front. In other words, our air battle, the battle of the Atlantic, and a battle in the Middle East, which, although it's far smaller than the uh, Russian front, it did draw off aircraft, vital aircraft, and men from the Russian front. So he'd pointed this out. Now, this was the bad-tempered one, the bad-tempered meeting, but Stalin obviously needed and was afraid that we would make peace with Hitler, perhaps even, just as we were afraid, and in reverse. It was essential for us to keep Russia in the war, obviously, Fighting the Germans, and of course Stalin wanted some relief from the bloodshed of his battles at Stalingrad, Leningrad, and the battle which won the war, which was the Battle of the Kursk Salient. Big tank battle, wasn't it? A big tank battle, six thousand five hundred tanks, which uh, took place in the summer of forty-three, uh, July forty-three. The, just after I had arrived in Russia, but to go back to Churchill, if I may. Stalin wanted to keep him there in Moscow to go on talking, so he invited him, after talking again, to his own private quarters, where he said, come and have a drink and uh, something to eat, zakuski in Russian. Uh, something to eat, and um, Churchill accepted. Anyway, that meeting dragged out into a seven-hour discussion of history and historical figures and so on.
6: Was was this before your time? This was before my my time. time. Yes, yes, yes. This Mm -hmm. was, uh, Mm -hmm. what, about... 42, uh, yeah. 42, yes, just just about a year. So so a seven-hour
1: meeting, goodness. Ten months before my time. So, um, but of course Arthur Burse was there, and he said, I think... Uh, Churchill began to look on Stalin as a a warrior, a great warrior, as he thought he wanted to think of himself and his ancestor, Marlborough, uh, about whom Stalin seemed to know quite a bit. He'd obviously been well-briefed. So that changed Churchill's perspective of Stalin. He looked at him quite differently, I think, and he could separate... Uh, the man, Stalin, from the system that he ruled, which uh, Churchill continued to criticise, but criticise is a very weak word, Continue to excoriate, perhaps.
6: <laughs> do, do you think, I mean, Churchill is very famous for his, for his command of the English language. Mm-hmm. Was interpreting Churchill to Stalin was conveying Churchill's sense to Stalin. Was that a particular kind of challenge? I mean, I'm interested in the idea of sort of character coming through language with these very strong characters. Is, is there more to interpreting, if you like? I mean, of course there always is, but more than the simple meanings of the words, there's a sort of sense of feeling behind it as well. Is that a
1: constant challenge doing the job you did? It's certainly a constant challenge. It was a challenge interpreting for Churchill, who did come out with this oratory almost unconsciously. But uh, we used to say you could uh, almost feel the words forming in his brain first and then coming down to his mouth and and, and coming out. Uh, There was a difference between all of them. Stalin was amazingly, what shall I say, logical, brief, always to the point, and very well briefed and advised. He had all the facts at his fingertip, almost never looked at a note. Molotov, who was his foreign minister, who did attend meetings with him, uh, always, invariably, he used to pass notes to Stalin, Stalin wouldn't take any notice. But so Molotov did very little of that, only occasionally, and I think he would have got into trouble with Stalin if Stalin had noticed too many notes going because that meant that Stalin didn't know what he was talking about, which he certainly did. He had a wonderful memory. If he'd been asked questions in a long preliminary by Churchill or by Roosevelt and then had been interrupted with other matters, he'd come back to the original and in the order in which the questions were asked would reply to them. Very adequately and expected the other two to do the same he possibly got occasionally irritated with Churchill going on uh, too long but he did admire what he said he said oh several you you can pick out in the history books actually there's several occasions where he praised Churchill for the bombing of Germany for example he said what a wonderful thing to go on and so on Roosevelt on the other hand was Waffle. Uh, now Stalin was playing up to Roosevelt because he saw that Roosevelt wanted to bypass Churchill and get his own um, requirements through uh, Stalin. Um, so he was a bit careful with him, but you could see that he got a bit impatient, particularly at Yalta, where Roosevelt had a lot of notes passed to him. I noticed this because I hadn't seen so many in the other meetings at all, and clearly, it was because he was ill and unable to answer for himself. He was being prompted very much more than previously.
6: So, do you have that sense uh, at an event like Yalta of a sort of jockeying for position? There were three very strong leaders there. I mean, you, I suppose you couldn't have had a sense at the time of the significance of that meeting for post war Europe. But nonetheless, was there a kind of sense of something taking shape around you through these individuals jockeying for position?
1: Oh, right from the beginning, from Tehran, which was, in my estimation, a far more important um, conference than Yalta. At Yalta, everything was done. Historians, or pseudo-historians, have got into the habit of talking about uh, Eastern Europe being... ...carved up at Yalta. This is complete nonsense. Stalin didn't need to carve it up. The Red Army was already there, virtually over the whole of Eastern Europe, not quite, but virtually. The Red Army was there, and the NKVD, which was uh, more important than the army after the army had won the military victory... The NKVD, that is the secret police, which later became called the KGB, was really the important takeover of those countries by Stalin. So it was all done and dusted. There was jockeying for position right from the beginning from Tehran, or even before Tehran, the 1943 Conference of Foreign Ministers was very important. That was where... Cordell Hull, who was Secretary of State, the American Secretary of State, wanted to talk only about post-war reconstruction of the Soviet Union, how much uh, the United States could have helped the Soviet Union. Uh, Anthony Eden, Churchill's uh, Foreign Secretary, was wanting to talk about the arrangements for Europe precisely, should there be a federation of some East European states or how were we going to help them? But Cordell Hull brushed this aside and really sort of with this cushion of indifference squashed the whole idea and Stalin was delighted not to talk about Eastern Europe because I'm sure by that time, from what one gathers now, he already had his ideas of Europe being part of the cordon sanitaire to the West and particularly Poland, of course. Which...
6: You were involved with the Potsdam Conference as yeah. well. Was that your first visit to Berlin in the area? Had uh, you been there before? No. So, so it was the first time you saw it was presumably in its state of maximum
1: devastation? Devastation, yes. Do you remember that, making what impression that made on you? Well, it was something that one expected. Uh, I had been home to London, actually, and that was pretty smashed up. I'd been home on leave briefly. No, it was what was expected. It was interesting, obviously, for me to see Hitler study the Reich How did you find your way into that? Uh, Well, I was at a loose end because I arrived there from Moscow, whereas our delegation was coming from London, of course, and I arrived from Moscow with a couple of other people from the British military mission And I went by car, I was driven by by a Russian, that's right, to the Chancery. He said, where do you want to go? And I said, well, where should we go? He said, well, have you been to the Chancery? I said, no, never. But I've seen the study on film, Charlie Chaplin films. (laughs) That was in my mind. Anyway, I arrived there on my own and just walked in. And I think the... British uniforms sort of startled them a, a, a bit. Very friendly Russian other ranks, NCOs and officers. There was quite a sprinkling of captains and a major inside the chancery and one later on outside in the garden where Hitler's bunker was. But you entered the chancery and right at the end was a great heap of stones and so on. When you came up near it, you could see it It was a desk which had been smashed into pieces, and everyone who visited it after took bits of this desk. I know our chiefs of staff did, because I told them that I had taken several, and I have them still at home. And then I went out down a couple of steps on the right-hand side into what had been a garden, obviously. It was still fairly well kept. The bombing didn't seem to have damaged much, if anything, of the garden. Bombing and artillery fire it had been. And then a major, yes, said, do you want to see where Hitler's bunk was? Uh, and I said, yes. And he said, would you like to go down? And I said, is it all right to go down? <laughs> he said, yes, we've been down. And I went down, it was very smelly, wet, unpleasant, but I poked around there and pulled out of his library, a small library there which had obviously been used because there were books out and I don't think it, they hadn't just been chucked about they're lying quite neatly on a table and I took a volume of The Brock House the equivalent of the Encyclopedia Britannica which I've also got at home still the composite volume A to Z I took that up into the daylight and said can I take this? And the major said, oh yeah, take whatever you like. <laughs> mm. So that was then. And then went back to the chancery and there picked up a file, two files of Hitler's, one to do with Bertha's garden, and the other one, his entertainment file for the year 1937, very interesting, because it had table plans of people being seated, familiar names, Mussolini banquet there was for him, and they had trouble over choosing the right music because Mussolini, if I remember correctly, didn't like Richard Strauss. So they quarrelled over that. But the table plans were really amazing because they had uh, Goering, Himmler, and others sitting next to various Italian Notability. So this must have been quite
6: soon after the end of hostilities, then. There can't be many other...
1: No. Brit- well, they didn't let us, they didn't mm. let the so-called Allied Control Commission, the British part of it, or the American part, in until uh, beginning of July. Uh, mm. I think they had, in Berlin, they had representatives talking about responsibilities and so on. So, no, this was quite some time on. And I don't think... I asked, I said, well, have any of our people been here, or Americans? He said, no, no, you're the first one. (laughs) Well, that's what they said there, I don't Mm. know if that's as true.
6: And there must have been this extraordinary extraordinary sense of a kind of hugely magnificent building, but now... uh,
1: In in, in, in ruins, yes. I've I've got little snapshots of it at Mm. home. And the other interesting um, room there for me was a long, about 20, 30-foot long, room about um, eight to ten foot wide only and covered with what I felt to begin with were autumn leaves. They were little brown envelopes containing iron crosses and other decorations which had all been spilled out on the floor. There were safes round the walls and they were open. And I said, well, why are these? There? What was in there? And they said, well, can't you guess? And I said, no. And they said, the iron crosses with the diamonds, the ones with the diamonds. And I said, Where are those gone? And he said, Well, I don't know.
6: At the Potsdam
1: conference,
6: presumably you saw the, the Churchill Attlee changeover happening. Well, not the actual, yeah. No, yes. oh, well, yes, that, that yeah. sense. Was there a certain amount of bewilderment on the Soviet side, do you think, of, uh, uh, going on at that point? Uh,
1: yes, I think there was. I think there was. Um, and possibly disappointment. Eventually disappointment, I'm sure, because Bevin turned out to be much tougher and more effective than Anthony Eden. But on, on the whole, the conference was, I call it the bad-tempered one, because all the meetings were, were sort of very nasty. They were getting down to grips then, you see. Um, for example, I was in, interpreting... At one of them, which Gromico, who was then a young man, a young diplomat, was conducting the Soviet negotiations for the handover of the Italian fleet to the Soviet Union as part of the reparations, Italian fleet, and we said, "Well, you probably don't want that junk," and there were difficulties and so on. It wasn't that we wanted to keep them, but there, there, there were problems and. Uh, Gromyko was very bad-tempered, he's a bad-tempered man anyway, he was, uh, unlike his son, who's just the opposite, a Soviet diplomat he became. Um, so that, that was unpleasant. On the other hand, there were rather nice social occasions with um, the RAF band playing so the string orchestra, actually, of the RAF. It wasn't the whole orchestra, but they were very good. and. Most surprisingly of all, Truman sitting down at the piano and playing Chopin to the highest standard. I mean, I'm not, no great judge, but um, Arthur Burse, I think, uh, played the piano in an amateur shot away himself and was astounded, well, as we all were, at, at the, the quality of Truman's playing.
6: And after Potsdam, do you then go straight back to Moscow? To to work with uh, the the embassy there or is the military mission yeah still yes still still going okay yeah yeah still going yes and then you're in Moscow for some years after that yes is that right I was. yes yes, yes. yes. And, and and for nearly four years yeah and um did you see much of, of Stalin then still still in contact with uh, him quite a lot yes. Yeah. yes yeah yes
1: yes in fact altogether I saw more of Stalin than I did of Churchill
6: still the same um, character essentially or uh, changing?
1: Yes, still the same impression, looking less worried than he did at Tehran, where he looked the most worried, of course, and, and in Moscow in the early days, with his sly sort of sense of humour. For example, when um, Montgomery came on a visit hoping to arrange interchange between officers, he was received by Stalin and took Stalin a case of whiskey. And Stalin meeting him, when we went up to him, I was carrying the case, actually. Went up in the lift to the first floor where Stalin's study was. Montgomery, in an awkward sort of way, before he said hello even, he said, I've brought you a present. And Stalin, not looking at Montgomery, said, "Oh, oh yes, and what do you want from me? And he still hadn't introduced himself, hadn't shaken hands. Afterwards, he shook hands, as he did with everyone, including the interpreters. Not his own interpreters, but with us.
6: Presumably he was recognising you by now. Oh, yes, he did. Yes, yes.
0: That was Chris Bowlby in conversation with Hugh Lungy. You can read more of Chris's interview with Hugh in our August edition.
4: So that's it. I hope you enjoyed that, that last segment. Um, BBC History magazine is published each month in the UK and costs just £3.80 an issue. You can look out for it in your local newsagent or supermarket, or take advantage of one of our great subscription deals, whether you're in the UK or overseas. You'll find details in the magazine or on our website, which is at com.
0: Well, that's the end of our August 2010 podcast. Next month, we'll be talking about the Korean War, an early English queen, and we'll find out how Dan Brown transformed the fortunes of a Scottish chapel.